This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walters is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. In this week's podcast, we're going to focus on some important issues, mainly related to chronic diseases, such as chronic kidney disease and interstitial lung disease, and also the latest guidance for healthcare workers who have symptoms. To tell us how the guidelines can help with these issues, we have on the line Dr. Abigail Davis, Section Editor, Emma Scott, Section Editor, and Dr. Matt Castledon, Section Editor and GP, who all work on BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. So to start with Abigail and CKD. Abigail, NICE have have recently published new guidelines on chronic kidney disease during the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell us what are the recommendations for managing patients with COVID-19 and CKD? Well, the guidelines highlight two important considerations for this group of patients, medication and place of care. So when a patient is diagnosed with COVID-19, their medications should be reviewed, taking into account whether any of those medications have the potential to adversely affect renal function, and those may need to be stopped temporarily. We might also need to decide whether a, a patient needs to be admitted to hospital, if that's appropriate, and nice advice and factors to consider. And those are the patient's wishes, the severity of their CKD, any comorbidities they have, whether the patient is taking immunosuppression, the risks versus the benefits of admission, and how the care that could be offered in hospital compares with the care that could be offered at home. And all patients with advanced CKD should have the opportunity to participate in advanced care planning. After recovery from COVID-19, patients' renal function should be reassessed. And the urgency of that assessment depends on the patient's GFR category, their comorbidities and the clinical circumstances. Okay, thank you. And and what about patients um, who do not have COVID-19 but still require nephrology care? These patients should be advised to continue taking their usual medications unless directed otherwise by a healthcare professional. And that includes ACE inhibitors, angiotensin II receptor blockers, immunosuppressants and diuretics. Some urgent outpatient appointments are still needed for certain groups of patients. And these include patients with nephrotic syndrome or very severe proteinuria, patients with a new diagnosis of CKD with GFR category G5 and patients with accelerated progression of CKD. That means a sustained decrease in GFR of 25% or more and a change in GFR category in the preceding year or a sustained decrease in GFR of 15 mils per minute per 1.73 metres squared per year. If the urgency of referral isn't clear, you should seek specialist advice. Renal ultrasound should still be performed if the result might change immediate management. For example, in patients with accelerated progression of CKD, patients with visible hematuria or symptoms of urinary tract obstruction, or when a nephrologist has identified an urgent need for a renal biopsy. Patients who are going to start dialysis should still have procedures to establish vascular or peritoneal access. 
and clinicians should also consider whether the start of dialysis could be safely delayed. If a patient would be eligible for a renal transplant, they should still be referred for this, but they should know that some tests and investigations might be delayed because of the pandemic. Uh, finally, patients who have stable renal function may be able to increase the interval between blood and urine testing, and they may be able to monitor their blood pressure at home, depending on their comorbidities and whether their CKD is progressive. There's more information on the guidelines in the management of coexisting conditions in the context of COVID-19 topic, which has been updated again this week, and you can access that on the BMJ Best Practice website. Okay, thanks, Abigail. That's really helpful. Let's move on to Emma and lung disease. Um, Emma, NICE have published new guidelines for patients with interstitial lung disease. Can you tell us what do the guidelines say? Uh, yes, um, patients with interstitial lung disease um, are at higher risk of severe illness from COVID-19. And of course, they should follow advice on reducing their risk of exposure. Face-to-face contact should be minimised, but in some cases, the benefits of attending a medical appointment might outweigh the potential risks. So this should be discussed with the patient. Patients uh, should be advised to keep a list of their medications and any other medical conditions and a copy of a recent clinic letter to give to healthcare staff if they do need treatment for COVID-19 and also any advanced care plans or advanced decisions to refuse treatment, including um, do not attempt resuscitation decisions, should also be clearly documented. New referrals should have telephone or video appointments if possible. Um, If the patient's condition hasn't altered considerably, then blood tests from the past six weeks, lung function tests from the past six months, and CT scans from the last 12 months uh, can all be used to guide diagnosis and treatment. New tests should be performed if these test results aren't available and are needed urgently to guide care. Um, In particular, bronchoscopy and pulmonary function tests should only be done if they're urgent and will directly impact care as they have the potential to spread COVID-19. Patients who do develop COVID-19 might not have a typical presentation. For example, if they're taking corticosteroids, they might not develop a fever. And assessment for COVID-19 can also be challenging because symptoms of interstitial lung disease and side effects of medication can be similar to the symptoms of COVID-19. Okay, thank you. That's that's really helpful. And, And are there any specific recommendations for treatment, I wonder? Yes, uh, for patients who don't have COVID-19, the decision on whether to start or continue an immunosuppressive therapy should take into account a number of factors, including stability of the patient, risk profiles of the different treatments, uh, whether the required monitoring and dose adjustments can be done, and if it would actually be safer to delay. Um, Patients who are already established on immunosuppressive therapy should continue as they're prescribed to reduce their risk of their condition worsening. Antifibrotic therapy can be offered as usual if the patient meets the required criteria and blood monitoring can be done safely. Patients already taking antifibrotic therapy should continue because there's no evidence that this increases the risk of developing COVID-19 or having a severe disease. Uh, Assessments for oxygen therapy can be deferred um, according to the patient's clinical need and if needed should be done in the patient's home if possible. Referral for pulmonary rehabilitation should continue though this will probably be done remotely at the moment, and referral for lung transplant should continue as usual. For patients who do have COVID-19, antifibrotics can be continued if the blood parameters are in the acceptable range and there's no other reason to stop. 
immunosuppressants can be um, temporarily stopped um, unless the benefits outweigh the risks of worsening the underlying lung condition. But this should all be discussed with the patient and any decisions on stopping treatments, adjusting doses, restarting treatments should all involve the patient's specialist team if possible. Okay, thanks, Emma. Um, Lastly, let's move on to Matt and healthcare workers. Matt, is there any new guidance for healthcare workers who have symptoms or who test positive for COVID-19? Yes, last week, Public Health England updated their guidance on management of staff who may have been exposed to COVID-19 so that it now applies to all staff in any health and social care setting. So across primary and secondary care and care home settings. Although at the moment, this is England specific advice. There is now a presumption that all healthcare staff with symptoms of COVID-19 will get tested as it's assumed there is sufficient capacity to allow this in England. If staff develop symptoms at home, they should not go to work and follow UK government stay at home guidance which involves self-isolating and staying at home for at least seven days. If they develop symptoms of COVID-19 at work, they should put on a surgical face mask, uh, inform their line manager and return home and follow the usual guidance on self and household isolation. If the healthcare worker's symptoms do not get better after seven days or their condition worsens, they should speak to their occupational health department or use the NHS 111 coronavirus service, uh, or of course, call 999 if there is a medical emergency. It's recommended that all healthcare workers arrange for a test for COVID-19 within five days of the onset of their symptoms using the government's online self-referral portal or through an employer referral. Okay, thank you. And, And when should staff return to work following a test? Staff with symptoms who test positive should follow the the stay at home guidance, which is to self-isolate for at least seven days or for at least 48 hours after their fever returns to normal, whichever is the longer. Uh, And then of course they can return to work. Staff who test negative, who feel well can return to work straight away. But if they continue to feel unwell, there needs to be some sort of risk assessment and clinical assessment which will result either in repeat testing or a decision to return to work at an appropriate time. There are some circumstances where staff without symptoms may get tested. Uh, There's NHS England guidance on this um, if there's a clinical need uh, to do so. And the recently updated Public Health England guidance covers the various resulting scenarios. It also includes flowcharts for applying return to work criteria depending on whether there's a positive or a negative test. And that's for both symptomatic and asymptomatic staff. Okay, thank you very much, Matt and Abigail and Emma. Um, And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.